Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Mark Smeets. He's an experienced business analyst. Mark, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Todd. So I appreciate it. Yeah. So when I first look at your profile, I see that you started out sort of in the arts field. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be that would be correct. And what was the thought there? What was the original thought? The original thought is when I, <laughs> this goes back to high school, when I graduated high school, I only had one interest and that was just playing music. Unfortunately, where I was musically and where this were, I wasn't aware of what I could do with my instrument at the time. Instead of just going into a music program, which is actually what I really wanted to do, my parents were like, well, you can't just play bass in your room all day. Of course, I was still pretty young. They're like, you know, find something else. And stagecraft and theater was actually what I went into as sort of the quote unquote compromise. It was an interesting experience to learn the inner workings of, uh, of how a theater works or how a concert works and to get the historical side of it as well. That's sort of how that ended up uh, working. And it was interesting because at that time in uh, for the city, the film industry was booming. But I was never able to make that transition over from kind of that theater stage rat, so to speak, over into the film side. Why do you think you couldn't make the transition? The world back in the 90s, like it was different back then. And I didn't quite understand where the union office was. You know, how do I get into those connections? And I, again, a lot of those things back then was just a, I think, just my own kind of young, dumb ignorance. That's kind of what kind of held back, but I never lost touch with those. Like I can sit there and look at lights or look at sound. And, you know, I, I always remained a connection to it. I still say, I mean, the nice thing was, is that theaters that I played at, I could sit there and bring a band there and we could play, you know, jam music too. So I found ways to sit there and incorporate all of that. That was certainly an interesting time, but it was hard work. And to get used to being on your feet for 14 hour days, you know, you're, you're on site at five and maybe you're not leaving until 10. It's hard. Yeah. How does web design and business developer come into this? So it was something that was going parallel for me. I'm of the generation where I grew up with a Nintendo in my hand or an Atari, whatever thing you want to have, or were of the generation rather. And um, for me, my dad was in the programming and everything. So I grew up with that sense of always having that computer. And, you know, my da- dad and I, we built PCs and that, and that part was awesome. So I naturally kind of picked up programming languages. And when the web came out, I, I don't even remember how I got introduced to it. Certainly my dad was one way, but I started off with a little 40 page HTML book that was about a half size, not even tiny. And um, I just started learning from there and from HTML, because it was just HTML version one back then. And this was 90, 95, HTML two hadn't even come out. From that point on, it just went and uh, it, it just I just learned from there. Eventually, I got into databases 
and uh, started using languages like Cold Fusion to hook databases up. It just became more and more complex. So my dad was active in a lot of circles, especially union circles with his with his work. And I ended up following with a um, with a union house and uh, did a bunch of websites for them. And uh, that's basically how that sort of took off. I was freelancing. It was my own little company. And the one thing that I realized, the biggest learning thing was that I'm horrible at sales. <laughs> so don't ask me to, <laughs> don't, don't, don't ask me to be the one to tell you about. Um, oh, you put it out there. I have to ask you, how were you horrible? Was it just picking up the phone or the pitch or you're convincing clients away from stuff? Like what, what was it? All of that was the work. <laughs> It wasn't good. And really, as being such a young kid and being kind of that introvert that I was, that wasn't where I could shine. And I was just happy coding. And my dad would kind of feed me contracts here and there. But I I really had, I really struggled to sit there and find something on my own. I, I just couldn't get over that introversion of myself. I didn't have it. And I didn't have that other partner that could have been my dad, but, you know, dad had a full-time job already that could sort of go out and do that work. I just wanted to code. And that was sort of that. Things are a heck of a lot different now where I think after how many years I had in, uh, in freight, there's little hesitation for me picking up the phone and being able to say, this is why you need to hire me or something like that. Or this is why you need to do that. I've built up that, that confidence in those connections sort of over that. So it's a lot different now being a lot older, but as a kid with no experience, it was very different. And I think back then in the nineties, especially it was still, you go physically knock on somebody's door. You go into the building and you say, can I talk to your HR manager? Or, you know, can I talk to your uh, your general manager or something like that? That was it. Nowadays, it's completely different. You know, email, phones, or e- email, um, you know, online calls, all these different things. There's a whole bunch of different ways to build your confidence and get yourself out there now. Yeah, yeah. When was that turning point where you kind of got over or or started to kind of turn the tide in terms of being able to pick up the phone or doing things that you, you could characterize as being more salesy or proactive? It wasn't until probably until I actually started over at, that would have been Loomis and Schenker, or actually, sorry, that would have been Loomis and DHL. When I got into customer service, because that's where I started in, in that department before I got into the tracing department, which is a whole other story, a fun story. Taking in those calls and then building up the confidence to not only answer questions, but investigate and say, oh, here's what's actually going on. Now you're convincing somebody that, you know what, the package is not lost. It's just delayed. You know, I see a scan here. This is what's actually happening. Or the drivers, I just heard from dispatch drivers down the street. Those little interactions built up the confidence over time. And you can begin to speak to that confidence. And I think... I think in the case of logistics, in the logistics world, it sort of gives you that that background, or not background is the wrong word. I was going to say subject matter expert, but that knowledge, that intimate knowledge, and how to sell it. If I was to look at this from a programming or website point of view, hey, I can hook a database up to a computer. And back in the 90s, and back 90s-ish, whatever that was, that wasn't something that people gravitated to. Like, why would you want to hook a database up? We're just happy we have a web ring or we're just happy we have these little links. 
or we have a we have a fact. You know, we have frequently asked questions. There was none of this stuff. Yeah. Nowadays, it's AWS, it's Azure, it's Azure, Snowflake, Google, this that. Everybody's got a database. But when you're the one that sort of realized what you could do with a database, and nobody else is kind of paying attention, you're going, oh, I'm kind of the only one in the room here, guys. What's going on? The thing I visualize is, I mean, obviously with newer technologies, you're convincing people, but I guess being a part of a very fast moving area, like logistics related or process oriented stuff, problems come up all the time. So you're constantly, shall I say, selling a solution. So I'm guessing that's what got over your sort of adverse reaction to doing in the first place. Oh, absolutely. And I think even with um, like my time in the tracing department, and for anybody that wouldn't know, the tracing department of a carrier is where you look for lost packages. So I've dealt with Lord knows how many revenue bands in terms of customers and, and so forth. But when a package goes missing, it's like, you know, someone's confidence is shaken. They want to sit there, be able to find it. They want their documents. They want their auger for their truck or something like that. That's when you start to realize that when you're trying to sell something, sell a situation, it's like you have to be honest and lay the situation out. And you have to say, here's what's actually going on. You know, we're going to look here, I'll look here, and uh, we'll see what we can find out. And that involved myself going, you know, down to the warehouse and physically looking through the conveyors and all that kind of stuff. But it also was, you know, learning the layouts of the other facilities. And asking the warehouse staff, you know, what's your experience? And I think that was a really wonderful opportunity because it allowed me to say, you know what, you were telling me about this one time where there's a section over by uh, corridor A, and uh, you're saying there's a little room there, and you found weird stuff there before. Any chance you've looked in there? (laughs) And those kinds of intimate knowledges and experience can absolutely increase whatever sort of selling proposition you've got. And it's amazing when you sit there and pick that up because you just sit there, you start to notice patterns and what how warehouses work. It's like, why is this freight ending up in this place? It shouldn't be. And then you start asking more questions. And the funny thing is, is I remember when um, the supervisors put me in the tracing department for the first time, I'd only been with them for three months. And I asked them, I said, why are you putting me in the tracing department? I don't understand. It was a little intimidating. You know, everybody's going to yell at you when a package is lost, and that's not the case. And so <laughs> I remember very clearly that my supervisor said to me, it's because you keep asking why, Mark. And so it's like, she was right. It is that constant need to ask why, to put things in place, to understand the process is exactly what made me tick. It was about as natural as you could have got for me. What's your best Guess what I ha- uh, what happened at work today story. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> that you can share on the podcast. <laughs> well, let's see. I've been invo- <laughs> I've been involved in uh, I can I can share most. I can share pretty much all of it. The problem is picking one. I've been involved in let's see there's been drugs involved. There have been stings with the police and RCMP. There have been weapons a couple times done one or two threats against drivers and calling the police and coordinating that. That's a long history of, yeah. of things. It's it's hard for me to really kind of pick on one story. They call all blend into each other, right? 
just watch a good movie on Netflix. You get a, you get a sense of it, right? Yeah, it, pretty much. It's, <laughs> if I, I, it's really tough to, it's, it's really tough to sit there and, and do it, but I think I've had of all the stories, the, the ones are the funniest stories, which is in no word of a lie is, are the ones where somebody wants you to pull a trailer over you know, a 53 foot trailer because there's a, um, there's a ham on there that they want for their Christmas dinner. And somebody actually shipped a ham. This is not, I'm not joking. I can tell you about the pizza place in Winnipeg that was next to a wagon wheel company. And because the wagon wheel boxes were round, not square, I don't know why, but anyways, the wagon wheel boxes fit the pizzas perfectly. And they would ship the, the uh, pizza from Winnipeg to BC. I can't remember where it was. I wish I could. You know, all these weird stories like you're going, I cannot make any of this up and no one's going to believe me, but it, it is all true. That must be some really good pizza. It, <laughs> apparently it was. And they had confidence in the network at the time to ship it overnight on the airplane. So it's like this was before our prices and logistics, you know, prices and gas went through the roof. Yeah, yeah. Let's zoom out, right? Let's go a little macro. I mean, when, there's a lot of supply chain and logistics issues right now. What are things about supply chain and logistics you commonly educate people on, whether it's a customer query or, or something? Like, what do you commonly say to people? I guess two of the biggest things are how packages move. Yep. And I'd say how customs works. And that sounds funny, but it's not many people understand. I, I think not many people understand that part of it. Um Okay, let's start with the first one. Let's start, yeah, the when when it's how packages move and and that kind of thing, the the questions, a lot of it tends to be, and this is our own life too. Like with my wife, you know, we've ordered something from some retailer and it hasn't shown up. Shipments, they'll you know they get picked up, they go on a truck, go to the delivery facility, they get sorted through all these different conveyors and such, and then they're sorted onto a bigger truck to go to the next destination people just being unaware of how a warehouse works and how those packages get sorted. I think that's the tricky part. And I know we had a package recently where it took certainly a while to get here. And um, one of the details I know for, as a fact about this company was that they consolidate all their shipments before they move them. So you may have ordered it, but it's not going to get there because it's waiting for the skid to fill up. And then it'll ship. And that's exactly what it was. So it adds an extra two to three weeks onto these things. And you're sitting there going, where's my package? It must be lost. Because all anybody will see is electronic pickup received, electronic information received. And there's so much education that you can do around just that piece. All that first line means is that a way bill or a bill of lading has been created. That's all it means. Yeah. And that's local knowledge, right? Because, you know, no one owns all the assets. It's a mismatch of everyone's assets. And everyone has different policies and procedures and optimizations that's applied to them, correct? Yeah, pretty much. And what ends up happening is that once that waybill is created, it may or may not leave the dock of that shipping warehouse. But if it does, and it just happens to sit in a carrier's yard for however long, that scan may never change because it never went through the sorting facility. Yeah. So now you're just still left with that scan going, is this on its way? What I used to do with my shipments, 
is I used to have like you have your individual labels, but then you would be able to tie that label back to a main label. So if I could track that main label, I know that skid hasn't been broken apart and that skid is moving as an entire item down. And then once it gets to its final destination, it's broken apart. So if I wanted to ship all the BC stuff with the BC stuff and all the Alberta with the Alberta, I'd have an Alberta skid with, you know, 50 boxes or something like that. And that worked extremely well because it was easy to find out, oh, this is where it broke down. Because if you have a breakdown of a Alberta skid in Winnipeg, why did that truck, why did they offload that? Oh, it turns out there was a problem with it. These are the kind of things that yeah that can go on. Yeah. And does it help to understand the partners you're working with them in their policy? Or is this too much shifting around that occurs to, to cover everything? No, you you want to understand the policies and such. A lot of what happens, I think, with I think the one thing that is not well known about a person's job in logistics is, it's going to sound a little bit weird, but it's really to prevent a claim. You want that package to get to that destination. You don't want it to become a claim. Nobody wants to shell out money for it. Everybody hates the claims process. It's horrible. But there is so much investigation that needs to go on for that. Really, the tracing department needs to be renamed to the claims prevention department. That's what it is. How does a the claims prevention department operate? Short version is that most of them, you know what, you you make a phone call and you say, hey, my package isn't here yet. And I guess the one misnomer we can deal with right off the bat is that claims is not just about a damaged shipment that's arrived on site, right? It's a package that hasn't arrived or, or something thereof. Um, it's one of those two. But the once that phone call is made, you basically get a record with a description of what that shipment should, you know, should contain what it looks like. And if you ever ship a box, don't say it's a in a 12 by 12 by 12 and it's a brown box because every box is a 12 by 12 by 12 by <laughs> brown box. And put labels on it, please, for the love of God. <laughs> Make it colorful, make it so it stands out. I just recently had to ship my my laptop back into uh, Toronto because it uh, it had a problem. It was only been a month old and it broke down, which drove me nuts. And so I put you know high color fluorescent stuff on it, and you could easily have pegged this thing out from from the warehouse. You know, tw- hundred feet back, you can see it. You can see the bright orange and light fluorescent pink stuff. It's great. I'm digressing too much, but, you know, at the same time, you know, the, it, it gives you an identifying mark. You've got your waybill on there, but one thing I'll just say is make sure you've got a waybill inside your shipment as well. So inside the computer box, I also put a waybill for the, um, you know, where it was coming from and going to, so no, somebody would know where to do it. Because if a box rips open and that happens, um, you know, how do you find out what, what box this is? If a fluid or something like that spills on the box and it ruins the box, how do you know where to send it? You've got this computer in this case, you know, sitting there with no box. How are you going to find it? Yeah. Okay. Well, somebody makes a phone call and say, Hey, I can't find my computer, but I have no identifying marks. Well, that's what you want to prevent, right? You, you, that's, that's where the claims part sort of comes through. We're getting into the weeds of a lot of Yeah. Things. Yeah. Well, I, I'll pull you out of the weeds and then pull, um, me out, pull me out of the weeds because there's so, there's so many things with claims that I could sit there and talk about. But again, it's, it's really tracing is about that claims prevention. And when you take those little steps, you're just going, hmm. you want to be able to know. 
again, it's not that brown box because everybody ships in a brown box. Yeah, yeah. Well, way, you, we got to go back to you said, how does customs work? I mean, that I, I want to know about that. The tricky part with customs, I think, is, especially in a lot of the groups that, that I've kind of frequented over the years, is when does the customs transmission take place and, and that sort of thing. It's not an overly complicated process. I think what's tricky is nobody wants to pay duties and taxes. And that's where I think a lot of companies will, I mean, all the carriers, so they'll just take advantage of, of that part of it. But um, as far as the way customs works is that if you've got a shipment being picked up in, in the US and it's coming into Canada, that shipment needs to clear customs. It needs to know that the documents that it's with, whether it's the commercial invoice or the uh, the performer invoice, rather, you know, complies with everything. And that's where how that transmission takes place, I think, is important. You've got the carrier movement of things, but then you've got sort of the personal responsibility piece of it. And when you're shipping these things back and forth, the, the bigger companies will have what are called power of attorneys set up. And the power of attorneys basically give that company, that carrier, the permission to clear that shipment on your behalf coming into Canada, which means, and when I mean clearance, they're saying, yes, you can enter Canada, and yes or no, there may, may or may not be duties and taxes applicable to it. And there are ways to get around the duties and taxes. That's a good thing. And I think what tends to happen is that's where a lot of the visibility is lost with a lot of people because they don't know what they're responsible for, but they're seeing that, oh, such and such, you know, carrier ABC has taken care of all these charges and I have to pay them that. Um, that's where I think it's like, no, you can actually take control of those shipments coming in and you can actually specify those things you know, who's going to clear it or who's going to be responsible for it. And you can save yourself a lot of the service fees that the bigger carriers choose you and just do it yourself. You just have to get ahead of it. And I think that's the big common thing that I have seen in my career is that people kind of leave it till the last minute. Well, it's too late. You have to do it before the shipment actually leaves. Yeah. And you have to do it probably when the shipment actually does. So if I'm going to send something to you and you're in Seattle, I'm going to make sure that we know who's going to be picking up the duties and taxes and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. And there's specific terminology for it. But um, hey, if we were to zoom out uh, further, because there's a lot of detail here, because I know, you know, you've more recently been focusing quite a bit on sort of the business analyst side, which is more just taking a step up and then looking at process improvements and stuff like that. Walk me through some of those things. Like, what are the important things there for an organization? I think the important thing is to understand your process. If you have a problem on your hands, have you actually walked yourself through the process? The first time you and I met and we had that conversation with your team, I remember at the end of the conversation, you said, you know, I thought we were going to talk about technology. But what did it end up being? It ended up being questions like, who is responsible for this? Who is responsible for that? And following that process through. And I may not have the most technical knowledge. I may not be able to program in C Sharp or whatever. But the, you know, the, the super nitty gritty stuff or, or use SAP or something like that. But to understand where the division of responsibility is and who's supposed to do what, those are what kick off tons and tons and tons of problems. And that's why I went there with, with our conversation, because I had to understand 
Who's supposed to do this? Oh, this person's not doing this. You know, that's where I'll sit there and, and, and look at it. So once you've got that down, then you can start to look at, you know, what people are actually doing and what are the details within the process. I'll give you an example. We had a, in one of my uh, previous roles, we had trucks coming in from the States and this truck was a 53 foot truck. And let's just say there were 500 boxes on this truck. The boxes, the shipment would clear customs, cross the border, go to the partner warehouse, and then everything would be distributed with other carriers across the country. So I was over, I was overseeing this process, the operations of it. And what ends up happening is the warehouse starts taking it, not that they start taking, they'd already been taking a long time to sort all these packages. And it took them, let's say 500 boxes, took them 10 hours. And they had to produce all the labels and label all the boxes correctly. And of course, they had to make the cutoff time for the carriers. Well, they were never making the cutoff time for the carriers. They had to use their own trucks to make it. I knew it was a big task because, I mean, a truck full of boxes, it's a lot to do, a lot of manual labor. But what there's your kind of high level view. So there's kind of your, let's, let's, that's your business problem. You've got a process that takes 10 hours, 10 people. You're still not making it on time. Okay, let's dive deep into this. How do the labels for the boxes get printed out? Is there any sort of control or anything like that? And granted, I'm leading these questions, but that's fine in this case. You know, when are the shifts actually starting in the warehouse? How many people can we have right at, you know, seven o'clock when that trailer cracks open? Oh, we can only have four people instead of the other 10 that we need? Oh, okay, well, this is obviously going to be a problem. Those are kind of the, the process questions you start to ask yourself, and you just kind of work your way backwards. In the case of the labels, what was happening is that the label printer would batch print 500 labels in one shot. So you would have to take, there's another aspect of this too, you would have to sort all those labels in alphabetical order by province. Why? Because none of them were labeled in alphabetical order. None of them were broken down by province. They were mixed boxes on mixed skids, and they were all over the place. So then you had to break all those skids down and find all the provinces, all the boxes. And no wonder it took the entire day to sit there and do, because you're just moving boxes around. It's the most non-value-added you know, activity you could ask for. So I ended up changing the whole system and working with the partner carriers that we had, instead of the label printer printing everything, we took, I basically said, every time I scan a label, I want, I, every time I scan a box, I want a label. And that stopped everything. So instead of now 10 people organizing all these boxes, I've got one or two people, one person would stand at the label printer, one person would scan you know, with the gun, beep, label prints, you walk it over to the person, start doing it. What used to, again, what used to take 10 hours for 500 boxes could probably now take how fast your team works, an hour, hour and a half, one to two people. That was it. And that's one of the, it's one of the funniest things. To, I still have the video of it, of me standing there because I was, I was knee deep in, in this project. And it was just like, I had this vision and I knew it would work. And it was just one of the coolest things to sit there and be like, this is all I have to do is just stand there, pass the label over to the person. It's great. It's still a non-value added thing, but whatever. It's, you know, it's better than 10 people doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The next step would have been to bring a uh, wireless hip printer 
from Zebra where you could just sit there, scan, and the printer on your hip would have done it. But I didn't get around to that. So <laughs> simple is best. Pretty much. Yeah. When you're not thinking about this process improvement or business analyst stuff. Well, I still do music and I'm starting to pick that up again because I didn't want to, I don't want to lose that skill. So I'm relearning how to uh, play songs and, and that kind of stuff. I'm big into triathlons. And um, I got into that a couple of years ago when my health was not so great and uh, been sitting for in the office for far too long. And I had to get myself out of the office and moving around. So what was funny is that I started off at, oh gosh, two, was it 230 pounds. And in the span of, it took me a couple of years. Let's say I started in 2018. And finally, just last year, I actually did my first triathlon. The pandemic sort of got in the way. So it kind of took this extra long time because there was no events. There were no races. And I finally did the Vancouver try. But to do all three disciplines is, is a lot of fun. And I was a competitive swimmer as a kid. So for me, I'm, I fall in that triathlon group of I'm the good swimmer, but I suck at everything else. And that's the fun thing about triathlons is that you get to say, you know, I'm not good at one thing, but I suck at three. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what you want. So very cool. Is there anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to cover or say? No, I think there's there's quite a bit there. You know what I think my question would be is, how would you inspire somebody under your in your team to be that advocate, to be that dedicated resource, to sit there and go and solve these kinds of problems? Because what I find interesting for me is that, again, I started off as, you know, that customer service rep. And I got into, you know, crawling on the hands and knees, so to speak, and sitting there getting to the guts of a warehouse and that kind of stuff. So what do you find is a good way to inspire someone to be that advocate? I know for me, it was always asking why. Yeah, I, I think there's two ways from my perspective or my experience. One is you find out everything about the individual that you're interacting with them and figure out what their why is. And, and to see what, how you can contribute to their why. That's the first step of relationship building. The, the other side is a little bit more kind of sort of earlier on is, you know, when you're assembling your team, you have to be very clear on what you believe and, and sort of hire against that and to, to make sure there's, there's common values. So it's not necessarily about convincing. It's about understanding what alignment is and alignment happens at every stage right it happens at the very beginning when you're hiring this individual and alignment happens when you're constantly caring about the individual situation and how it develops over time mm, cool i like that all right well thank you Mark. thank you very much Tom. thank you for listening to the specified growth podcast today make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com <laughs>